you would, turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 6. We will be in Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15 today. Acts 6, 8 through 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, we will have it on the screen. Uh, You will also find in front of you, there are some blue paperback Bibles. Uh, You can feel free to grab one of those as well. And as always, if you don't own a Bible, that blue Bible is our gift to you. So take that home as a gift from us to you. Uh, And I also want to say, if you're new here at Redeemer Fellowship Church, it's your first time with us. Um, If you want, you can come on back to the welcome table. It's the table with the metal front back at the back after service, and uh, we would love to fill out uh, a card for you and give you another free gift from us to you. So uh, be sure and do that if you're new here at Redeemer Fellowship Church. We want to give you that and bless you in that way. For today, we will be in Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15, continuing on through the book of Acts as we have begun. And... We will see now the great story of one Stephen. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As the, uh, let's pray before we begin. Lord God, as we begin today, as we open up your word to study, to read, to, uh, to be taught and instructed by your word, we do ask, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would guide us and direct us into all truth, all wisdom, and all love. And Lord, we ask that we might read this text and uh, see it not just as a interesting story from a bygone age, but Lord, that we might see it as instructive and influential for us today as we read of the story of this, the very first martyr, Stephen. And I ask, Lord, that you might be glorified through our time spent. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As the youngest of five siblings, I have always kind of prided myself on my ability to, as the title says, stir the pot. If you are in here and you are uh, one of many children, and especially probably if you are the youngest, then you can, can probably relate to what I'm talking about. That as the youngest child of five, I made it my mission to do everything I could to stir the pot, to get attention, to cause a ruckus, oftentimes for no reason at all. In fact, I can remember one time, for no reason, I just had the bright idea Uh, as we shared one bathroom for all of the siblings, that I was going to put water on the toilet seat of the toilet. 
to make my sisters think that I'd made a big mess in there for no reason other than to hear my sisters scream. And um, I'm pleased to report that it paid off well. And uh, within just a, a, an hour or so, my trap that I had laid was sprung and, and the scream yelled out and uh, just like that, I was in trouble, you know? Um, I was very good at stirring the pot, at, at causing issues, at getting under people's skin, especially my siblings, especially my parents. Uh, it was sort of an art form. I would argue that the early church in this day, and as we look now at the example of Stephen, was notoriously good at getting under the skin, at stirring the pot, as it were, in Jerusalem among the Jews who were there. We see here yet one more example of the disciples, of the, the church here in Jerusalem as the church was growing and spreading, once again coming face to face, clashing with the Jews. We see here now Stephen is found to be stirring the pot here in Acts. And indeed, this stirring, as the stirring has been going on for some time now throughout the story in Acts, is now bringing the story to a point of no return, to a point that indeed Christ promised would come, but still a point of sadness and sorrow, yet one that's expected Stephen here was stirring the pot, but he was doing so by preaching the gospel and by doing many signs and wonders in the name of Christ. This was more than enough to catch the attention of the Jews in Jerusalem. As we know, they've already been commanding the church, commanding the apostles, even beating them as they commanded them, do not speak in this name again. What name? The name of Christ. And now here Stephen is, stirring the pot, preaching the name of Christ, doing signs and wonders in his name as the gospel is proclaimed and works are being done, people are being heal, healed, and yet again, the Jews are furious. And my hope today that as we, is that as we read this story of, of Stephen stirring the pot, that we might see for us as Christians here today ways in which God is encouraging us as his people to stir the pot for his sake. And I want us to see this in three ways, three ways in which we ought to be encouraged by God as his people to stir the pot, so to speak. First of all, we see an encouragement to stir the pot in the fact that the power of God is at work in his people. This is point number one for those who are keeping track. The power of God at work in his people. Even Stephen this one chosen by the church to do ministries of mercy was given grace, the power of God to perform signs and wonders and healings and all kinds of things in the name of Christ. As verse number eight tells us, the opening verse, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen and the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. We see here Stephen as a man that was actually mentioned last week, if you recall. He was mentioned because he was one of the men, one of the Hellenistic Jews who was chosen, who was put forward and appointed by the church and the apostles to serve the church, to meet the needs of those who in the church had need. In that particular case, you recall, it was 
widows. It was Hellenistic widows who were being ignored in the daily distribution of goods. And Stephen was one of those men, a man of good reputation, filled with the spirit, trustworthy, who was put in this place. But remember, this was not a a calling specifically to the proclamation of the word of God. Indeed, that was something the apostles needed these men appointed to serve so that they could do. It was the apostles who said, we need to not spend our time serving tables, distributing food, not as Not that that is not important, but our time is better spent to do what we were called to do, which is to preach the gospel. And so they appointed these men to be servants of the church, to serve in this way in the meeting of the physical, real needs of the church. And this Stephen is one, is one of the seven who was chosen to perform this task. He was chosen, he was appointed, he enters into the scene to be a minister of mercy, one who was called to meet the physical needs of the church, and yet even Stephen has been given the grace of God and the power to perform these many signs and wonders in his name. I think one of the things that we we, we ought to see from this is never to underestimate the little guy. I think it's, it's an unfortunate shame that in our churches today, the role of deacon, the role of servant in the church, has been considered to be one with a lesser importance, with a lesser power, with a lesser significance than other roles in the church. Well, yes, the, the role of elder or pastor is the role of one who's called to shepherd and teach and oversee the spiritual formation of the church, and that is a great and important role. But just as necessary to the health of the church and the vitality of the church and the spiritual health of the church is the role of a deacon, of a servant. That's what the word deacon means. It means servant. And yet it is one of these servants now who we see the power of God working through in a miraculous way, a way that for many might have seemed to be unrealistic. This is just a deacon, so to speak. It reminds me of the the movie Men in Black. Whenever Will Smith is is given the weapon to, to fight aliens, right? And, and he's given this tiny little rinky-dink gun. And he's like, oh my goodness, what is this? Why can't I have the big one like you, right? And he's just so annoyed that he got this little bitty gun. But then if you recall, the first time he fires the gun, it has a, a kick that knocks him back off the car he was standing on, right? That little bitty gun carried a great amount of power. I think in the same way, the, the story of Stephen here demonstrates for us that All of those who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who have the grace of God within them, have a great amount of power. Indeed, Stephen was merely a deacon, as some would say. But in no way does that mean that the power of God was not at work and evident in the life of Stephen. And although we're talking about deacons, we could insert this into any role in the church. Someone could be merely a children's director merely a Sunday school teacher, merely a groundskeeper. And yet we know that in any of those roles, when that role is filled by one who is filled with the Holy Spirit, the power of God is with them. This passage shows us that the power of God that accomplishes his grace is so powerful that it works through any vessel he chooses. Whether man, woman, pastor, deacon, groundskeeper, janitor, whatever it might be. Any of those who are filled with the Holy Spirit have the power of God within them. 
Matthew Henry in his commentary says, those who are full of faith are full of power because by faith, the power of God is engaged for us. If you in here today are trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, if the grace of God has been poured out upon you, then the power of God is accompanying that grace and that faith. We too have been filled with the Holy Spirit and have the grace of God in our lives. Therefore, we also have a supernatural empowering just as Stephen did. And while we might not see the the Holy Spirit working in the same way he did through Stephen, we might not be able to go out and perform great signs and wonders in his name and lay our hands on people and, and heal them. We still know and believe and see that the Holy Spirit is at work within us to empower us to the task that he has called us to, to strengthen us in our assurance and in our confidence, to give us boldness to do exactly what Stephen has been doing here in proclaiming the gospel. Because we need to remember what exactly it is that got Stephen in trouble here. It was not just the fact that he was performing signs and wonders. It was not the fact that people were being healed that caused the Jews to become so angry. It was the message of the gospel that he was preaching. And we see this in the accusations that they bring later. Their accusations never involve that people are being healed, that signs and wonders are being done. The accusation is dealing with the words that he is proclaiming. That's what they had the beef with. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ. We too can expect the same kind of hostility when we as believers today preach the gospel. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ, just as it was then, is offensive to an unbeliever. It's a gospel message that says, you are sinful, you are broken, you need repair. That's where it starts. And that's not a message that people want to hear. The messages people like to hear is, you're great, you're awesome, follow your heart because your heart knows where it's going. But the message of the gospel says, you're broken, you're sinful, you're weak. But then introduces Christ into the situation. To say where you are weak, he is strong. Where you have failed, he has succeeded. And this is the message that got the Jews so riled up. That Christ had come, had accomplished the victory by by defeating sin, dying on the cross, taking God's wrath for us. And now has been raised from the dead. We can also expect, expect the same kind of hostility when we preach Christ crucified. But in the same way we can expect the same power of God flowing through us as the Holy Spirit moves. Point number two, the wisdom of God over the knowledge of man. In verses 9 and 10, as we've already read verse 9, we see that these men are are coming and they are interacting with Stephen and they are seeking to debate him in verse 10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. All of these men who are part of this synagogue, they come and they seek to debate with Stephen. Perhaps it was that they thought, well, this isn't one of the apostles. He should be pretty easy to take down. I mean, after all, he's, he's just one of their servers. He just serves their tables. And he's coming out here to proclaim this. Well, we can easily refute this guy, so let's go. Let's refute him. It was a group of 
Greek-speaking Jews that were likely here in this place. It was called the Synagogue of the Freedmen, which, which scholars have debated what likely this is referring to, but it seems po- possible, or at least plausible, that this is a reference to a synagogue that was built and established by those who were formerly enslaved, or perhaps those who, were, uh, who had been freed from underneath the Roman government and tyranny. But whatever the case might be, we see in verse 9 that it is a, a group of people that are non-Hebrew Jews. They are what we would call Hellenistic Jews, meaning that they are Greek-speaking, that in a sense, a lot of their culture has been, has been changed from Hebrew culture, and they look a little bit more like Greek culture. And this is significant when you think about the fact that for them, who though they have been, been expelled from their, their Jewish roots, and likely this happened during one of the exiles, and been spread abroad, dispersed, as we would say, they had to fight all the more and had to remain all the more committed and serious to their Jewish identity in order to keep hold of this teaching. And so it's reasonable to think that these men would have been even more serious about their traditions than the Hebrew-speaking Jews, for whom it came easy and simple. It was a part of their culture, but for these, they were seeking to preserve their traditions even through a different culture. But it's interesting to note then that it is not the man, Stephen, it's not himself who was the force that these men who came aggressively to debate him and to try and counter what he was saying, it was not Stephen himself that they couldn't handle in debate. You notice the text doesn't say that. It doesn't say that Stephen was so quick-witted, that he was so intelligent, that he was so well-educated that they didn't stand a chance. What does it say? It says that they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. It was the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking that they were no match for, not Stephen himself. For those of us in here who who think in this way, and I, I know that I've been guilty of this, thinking that if I'm going to be an effective witness for the Lord, then I need a certain amount of education. I need a certain amount of knowledge. I need to to have prepared defenses. I need to know what other people are going to say in order that I might counter that, this and that. But what do we see here? It is the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of believers for which these people are no match. It's not his intellect that is so unmeetable. It is the wisdom that the Spirit provides. This reminds me of what Christ himself says in Luke 21. This is a passage that Aaron pointed us to a few weeks ago. In Luke 21, 12 through 15, here's what Jesus says as he's speaking to his disciples before his death. He says, before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Notice, this is exactly what we see happening in the book of Acts, isn't it? It's exactly what we see happening. But it gets even more precise when we read the next verse, verse 14. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand on how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. That's exactly what just happened to Stephen. Verse 10, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. What we see then in verse 10 of our text is God's promise fulfilled. 
Stephen was empowered by the Holy Spirit, given a supernatural wisdom in order to speak and stand boldly before his accusers. Regardless of his intellect, regardless of his knowledge of of all the philosophy that he could get his hands on, it was the spirit-empowering wisdom that allowed him to stand and remain unrefuted. The wisdom of God is granted to his people by the Holy Spirit, and Stephen boldly proclaimed and experienced that in this instance. As God's people, again, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us which means that we can trust him, that we can trust God to grant us wisdom when we enter into these situations. That we can go and we can boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that it's not us that people won't be able to withstand, but it is the wisdom of the Spirit as we speak. And we have demonstrated for us an example of this exact situation. God fulfilling his promise to Stephen and doing exactly this. And yet, too often, I find it to be true that we still don't believe this promise. Even after seeing it demonstrated in the life of Stephen, we have a hard time believing that we can find ourselves in this situation, lacking a certain amount of knowledge that we think we need, and stand firm. And yet, this is what the scriptures tell us. Many times we're afraid to proclaim the word of God, to proclaim Christ and him crucified, for fear of not being granted wisdom from the Spirit, and for fear that the result is that we will fail. But I think this represents a a faulty view of success and failure in our evangelism. I think too often we equate success in evangelism with lives changed by the gospel. And indeed, as believers... As the people of God, that is what we pray for. That is what we hope for. That is what we long for. But I think J.I. Packer in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, I think he makes a strong case for the fact that as believers, we ought not view success in evangelism by whether or not people come to faith in Christ. We want that to happen. That's our goal. But for us as believers, we believe that God is sovereign over all things, that he is going to save those whom he has ordained to save. So then, when we go to proclaim the gospel to those around us, to evangelize to the lost, we know that we have no power to bring them to Christ. We've been called to be used as vessels to proclaim to them the good news of their guilt and of Christ's redeeming work. But in the end account... There is nothing that we can do to save a lost soul. It is only God who can save. And so, our measure of success when we seek to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ is not found in whether or not people immediately come to faith in Christ. But it's found in whether or not we have been faithful to the task that God has called us to. When we faithfully proclaim the gospel, we will have success regardless of the results that are immediately produced. Think about Stephen here in this example. What were the immediate results of his preaching? What was the immediate, re- immediate re- excuse me, the immediate result of his debating and reasoning with these men? They didn't all go, well, he's refuted us. Therefore, we must repent and accept what he is teaching. That's not what happens, is it? We know what happens, and the next 
few chapters, he's going to be put to death. He's going to be martyred. The good news and the hope in this is found in the fact that just as he promised, the Lord was present. Excuse me, I'm skipping ahead. Think about Stephen, this group, and what were the immediately result, the immediate, the immediate results? It was not all of these men coming to faith in Christ because he had correctly reasoned with them. In fact, it led to his death. This also speaks, I think, to the hardness of the unbeliever's heart. We think sometimes that if we reason correctly, and if we remove all arguments against the gospel, against Christ Jesus, that people will have no choice but to repent and believe the gospel, don't we? we? I wish that was the case. I wish that if we could simply remove all obstacles in their mind and in their reasoning that they would believe. But as we see from our text, that's not what happens. It, the text tells us they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They couldn't refute him. They couldn't argue against this deacon about the truth of the gospel. As much as we wish we could, just refuting all the arguments of lost people does not necessarily result in their salvation. But it doesn't mean that we have failed in our preaching so long as we are faithful to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he will grant us wisdom. Even if the world around us hears the truth that we proclaim and they reject it, it is not right then to conclude that God did not pour out his spirit upon us and give us the wisdom that we need, so long as we are faithful to proclaim the gospel truly and rightly. Then point number three, the presence of God in the face of the enemy. Verses 11 through 15 says, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Ultimately, when these men were unable to refute the arguments that Stephen was making, when they were unable to refute him as the wisdom of God was being poured out through the Holy Spirit, they decided to handle their problem another way. What they often do, they resorted to lies, to accusations, to silencing him if they could not refute him. What were the accusations brought against Stephen? They're quite interesting. They were, they were accusations of what? Of blasphemy. They were accusations that he was speaking against Moses and God, and therefore blaspheming. Why would they have made this claim against him? I would argue they made this claim because he was preaching the same message that Christ preached regarding the temple and the ceremonial law and Moses himself. What is it that Jesus taught about Moses and about the temple? He never spoke ill of Moses. He never spoke ill of the temple. Rather, Jesus proclaimed regarding the temple and Moses that he was the fulfillment of all of it. Indeed, that the temple was going to be fulfilled in Christ Jesus. That Moses prophesied of one who was to come, and that was Christ. 
Jesus never once came and, and spoke against the law of God. In fact, what do we read in Matthew chapter 5? Jesus himself says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. It's amazing to me how similar the accusations made against Stephen are to those made against Christ. That of blasphemy, of speaking against Moses and the law and the prophets and the temple. And just like with Jesus, the accusations that are here brought against Stephen are false. They are a twisting of his words, a ripping out of the context what he has said. You see, the truth didn't matter to these individuals. They only sought to destroy this one that they saw as a threat to their system, as a threat to their way of life, just as they did to Christ. As for the claim that he spoke blasphemous words against Moses, that's also proven to be false as he's going to speak in the next chapter. The church never despised or spoke against Moses. Rather, they pointed out that Moses himself prophesied about Jesus whom they killed. That there was one who was going to come after Moses that was greater than he, and that was Christ. But we must acknowledge that as is often the case, there is a hint of truth in this false witness that they bring, isn't there? In this false witness that they bring, what do they say in verses 13 and 14? This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. If you know the gospel you know that there is a hint of truth in that statement. It's twisted, it's distorted, but we know that the truth of what Christ came to do was not to ridicule, to spit upon the Jewish traditions, the ceremonies, the law, but was to become the fulfillment of those things. Indeed, those of us who worship the one true God no longer worship in a temple, do we? In that sense... It might seem right to say that the temple has been abolished. But that would never be a claim that Christ would make, that the temple was worthless, that it was, uh, that it was a failure, but that the temple, the ceremonial law, the prophets, all of that was pointing to a coming fulfillment and that Christ was that fulfillment. That there were no longer sacrifices that needed to be made. Why? Because Christ was the final sacrifice for all. That we no longer need to worship God in the temple. Coming into the holy place and then even further into the holy of holies. Why? Because Christ now lives in us. That all of these pictures we see in the old covenant and under the law are fulfilled in Christ Jesus. If you want to know more about that, just go listen to our sermon series on Hebrews. That was the theme of Hebrews. That Christ is the fulfillment of all of that. In the face of these enemies, and with the whole situation rigged against him, imagine how Stephen must have been feeling. I don't think it's that hard. How would you have felt? Scared? Nervous? Fearful? Insecure? I'm sure to an extent all of those things. Because this was a scary position he had been put in here. But the good news and the hope is found in the fact that just as the Lord had promised, 
He was present with Stephen through all of it. Every step of the way. As he told us in the Great Commission, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. Stephen is not alone in this fight. He is not alone as he stands before his accusers. And I would argue that that's even demonstrated by the last verse that we see here in Acts chapter 6, verse 15. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. There is some kind of dispute, some who, who will, will say what this means and what it doesn't mean. Some will say that this is a reference to his, his face being somber, not one of, of fear or anger, but one like an angel that is unconcerned, that is trusting the Lord. And I think probably that is true, that that was his, his demeanor. But I think even more so what this statement in verse 15 is pointing us to, it's, it's a, it, is that it's a reference to the glory of God shining from him. The statement, his face was like the face of an angel, seems to be some outward form, some outward manifestation of the presence of God being reflected through Stephen. It is a reflection of the glory of God here on Stephen's face. It's funny to, to, to note the irony of this statement in this situation, in the face of these accusations that are being made. And the reason I say it's ironic is because if you recall from the Old Testament, there was another person who was spoken of in this way, of his face taking on a particular look. And that was Moses. In Exodus 34, 29 and 30, we have this. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and beheld the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. In the same way that the face of Moses was shining as it was reflecting the glory of God, as he was in the very presence of God, so too I think is true of Stephen. I think this shining of Stephen's face is a reminder, it is an outward reflection of the glory of God, demonstrating for us that God was present with Stephen. Every moment of this, the Lord was with him. And you'll, you'll remember I said that this was ironic. Why? Because his face was shining like the face of Moses, the very one whom they had claimed that he was blaspheming against. Now here, he is spoken of in very similar terms as Moses. As we conclude, I, I want this to be the case for us, that as we look at the life of Stephen, indeed, it's a fascinating story, and we've only scratched the surface. As we look next week, next week we're going to get to hear the amazing sermon that Stephen preaches before he is ultimately killed. But my hope is that as we read this, that we too would be those who stir the pot in the world like Stephen. And when I say stir the pot, I don't mean that we want to go out and we want to be belligerent. It doesn't mean that we go out and we look for arguments to have. But it means that we stir the pot in the same way Stephen did. That we boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world around us. Because trust me when I say, that will stir the pot. If you work in a place outside of 
religion or the church, someplace where there are secular people at your job, just try it sometime. See if the pot is stirred. Talk to them about their sin. Talk to them about the gospel and the exclusivity of Christ. And I tell you what, you're going to ruffle some feathers. You're going to stir the pot. You're going to get people's attention. But my hope is that we would be encouraged to do exactly that. So that we would have confidence knowing that the power of God is at work in his people, including us as we proclaim the gospel. That the wisdom of God overcomes the wisdom of man and is greater than the wisdom of man. And that the presence of God is sure in all situations. Probably the most well-known psalm in the, the book of Psalms says what? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. It is a great comfort for us to know that in this life, every step of the way, the power of God is within us. The wisdom of God is for us and is opposed to the wisdom of man and the presence of God is here every step of the way. Let us take courage in this. Courage in the gospel. Courage in the fact that we no longer have to make sacrifices and that indeed in a sense the temple has been, uh, has been outdated not because it was no good but because something greater has come and that being Jesus Christ. As abrasive as that message was to the Jews and as it still is to the world around us today, it is the only message that has hope. These Jews were blinded by their sin, blinded into thinking that their ceremonies, their traditions were more valuable than what Christ had accomplished. They were so blind that they couldn't see that the temple that had now been abolished and fulfilled in Christ Jesus was lesser. It was a shadow. It was pointing to something greater to come and that it was Jesus Christ whom they crucified. Let us see this reality today and boldly proclaim it to the world around us, knowing these truths that God is with us every step of the way. Let's pray.